Good morning. Uh, I would say we'll now have our lesson, but that would be weird since I'm just kind of stepping right up here. Um, so uh, for the lesson this morning, um, I've kind of switched things around from what I had intended. Um, I was hoping to finish Second Kings um, with uh, the theme for the year this morning, but uh, the lesson just really just needs more time and uh, work invested into it. So there was a lesson that I was going to give after I got back from uh, traveling and all that um, in the coming weeks. And ironically, ironically, that lesson is a lot more like ready than the lesson that I was planning on giving earlier. So this is going to be a lesson that's a continuation of this theme that I've been following with really just trying outside of everything else to follow through with what are fundamental lessons that help us to have a grounded understanding of God and how to identify with him and how we identify or how God identifies himself with us and how we in turn identify with him. And we're just kind of building right now. Um, and I'll have some introductory thoughts here in just a moment. But the, the focus of this lesson is going to be continuing to expand our knowledge of Jesus. And ultimately, the last lesson I had mentioned as like a question of application, do you love Jesus? Um, Jesus is full of grace and truth, as John describes him, and Jesus is ultimately the focus of our affection and our faith. And we looked at the beginning of John's gospel um, a couple Sundays ago, and what we're going to do is look at the beginning of Luke's gospel this morning and, and see the example of how did Luke love Jesus? And I've just been convicted in my readings of Luke just how much evidence there is for this man's incredible knowledge his incredible devotion, his incredible love of Jesus Christ. And so I think if we can love Jesus like Luke loved Jesus, we're setting ourselves in the right foundation with Christ as the true cornerstone of our faith. So just some introductory thoughts, to, just to put together the past lessons very quickly. The first lesson that was on this subject, this theme, we just kind of looked at how the Bible, being called the Holy Bible, just means that the Bible is a series of set-apart books or volumes of writing that there are 66 volumes encompassing what is our Bible, and that's 39 volumes of writing in the Old Testament, that is, everything that was written before Jesus, and then there are 27 volumes of the New Testament, that is, everything written about Jesus and after his life. It was written over a period of 1,600 years in three continents, three languages by over 40 authors. It's just an incredibly magnificent series of volumes, all connected on one purpose, and that is like the title of the series. The, the uniform purpose of Scripture is all to identify God and to teach us how do we identify in turn with Him, right? So last week we looked at John 1, 1 through 18, that John is an eyewitness. He, he saw Jesus' glory, but it wasn't just that he saw Jesus as a man. There were all these different angles that are described about Jesus and how John saw him. And one of the things we focused on is just fundamentally that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And that Jesus was sent to identify our need for the fullness of his grace and truth. And to then also draw us to seek out the fullness of his grace and truth. And we, we talked about last time as well how it's, it's Jesus' death and his resurrection that vindicates his testimony. That he didn't just speak truth like mathematical truth. Foremost of all, Jesus spoke truth because he was testifying of things that were based in God's authority. 
that he was sent to speak on the Father's behalf. And when he resurrected from the dead, it proved and vindicated that his message, his life, his ministry, everything he did was an accurate testimony of everything that the Father had given him to testify to. And so everything that Jesus then did in his ministry, everything that he said is then truth. And the grace that he gives then is from a greater source than just who he was as a man. So if you want to turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts to begin our study, we'll, we'll talk more about why uh, Acts is important when we're considering Luke. But we're going to be ultimately looking at Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. And there's more about Luke um, in terms of things that describe Luke compared to a lot of the other writers of the Gospels. Um, John refers to himself um, in the third person multiple times in that gospel. And he wrote other uh, volumes of writing outside of just his gospel. Matthew, um, we see him present in Jesus' ministry, but there's not too much said about Matthew besides him being a tax collector and an apostle. Uh, Mark, there's very little said about, about Mark. But with Luke, there's actually a few things about Luke that I think heighten the importance that we're able to get, the importance of the points we're able to get from examining how he wrote uh, these things down. So he's a Gentile. Uh, he's not mentioned among the circumcision when there are uh, associates of Paul being described in Colossians 4, and that just kind of fundamentally points to the fact that Luke was not somebody of Jewish origin. His name is not Jewish in nature. So like every sign points to the fact that Luke was not somebody who was a Jew, which then infers that he had probably no background of the law of Moses. Um, it also infers that he was not a part of the Jewish culture before he became a Christian. So there's a sense where we can at least get from that that a lot of this, if not all of it, was probably very new to Luke when he obeyed the gospel. And in chapter 16, verse 10, something that's very subtle and easy to overlook, in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, I'll go ahead and read this verse. It says, When he, that is Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Acts chapter 16, verse 10 is the first time Luke inserts himself within his own writing. Uh, Luke stays in Philippi at the end of Acts. Uh, Paul is imprisoned, and then after being released, he then continues traveling. It's not until Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, specifically verses 5 and 6, where you see Luke again using terms like we and us. And from Acts 16, verse 10, to the end of the book of Acts, Luke refers to himself with Paul 87 times. In chapter, seven, chapter 27, when Paul is uh, shipwrecked, um, and on a boat where they're uncertain if they're even going to survive, and they're, they're eventually shipwrecked, Luke is actually there with Paul. Luke was with Paul in his journey to Rome and his imprisonment. And even in chapter 28, when they eventually reach land, the, the book of Acts ends, Luke is still with Paul. Luke is described as a physician in Colossians 4.14. Um, it seems like Luke continued that work in a sense while um, using um, his abilities for the sake of the gospel. And, you know, there's oftentimes um, a reference to the fact when hearing about this from teachers that it's likely that Luke would have used those uh, talents specifically to help Paul with all of the ways that he was beaten and attacked and hurt. Um, and so Luke then serves as a fitting companion for Paul in his journeys as he was persecuted uh, physically. 
Um, Luke wrote uh, his obviously self-titled gospel account, um, but he also wrote the book of Acts. Um, The beginning of Luke and Acts are both very personal, and we'll see that in just a moment. Um, But Luke is actually the longest word count, um, by word count, Luke is the longest account of Jesus' life. Um, Luke has 24 chapters. Matthew has 28 chapters. So you would assume by that that surely Matthew is a longer account because it has four more chapters than Luke does. That's like, it's a lot more chapters. But Luke has very long chapters. So Luke chapter 1, for instance, it's over 80 verses. It's just, it's a massive chapter, right? So as far as word count, Luke is longer than even Matthew um, as a gospel account. Just think about how interesting that is, that somebody who is a Gentile, who is not an eyewitness of Jesus, who seemingly by implication had no background with the law of Moses, no background with the Jewish culture, wrote a longer account of Jesus' life than the Jews who wrote about him and the eyewitnesses who spent the time of his entire ministry walking with him. He also obviously wrote the book of Acts. When you put Luke and Acts together, by word count again, that is more writing than all of the Apostle Paul's epistles combined. So if you put, you know, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, etc., 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 if you put all of Paul's writings together by word count, all of that writing is still not the amount of writing that Luke did with Luke and Acts put together. So think about that as well. A Gentile who never saw Jesus with his own eyes wrote more New Testament scripture than any other author of the New Testament. And I'm sure you can see just how, how amazing that is, right? So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, turn here as well. This will be kind of the, the final point here of these facts about Luke before we get into the beginning of his gospel. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, this is Paul's self-proclaimed final epistle Um, He mentions in verses 6 through 8 that he's aware that he's about to die. So this is the last thing he's going to be writing. He's giving a personal exhortation to Timothy. And verses 9 through 11, he mentions some interesting things. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. In verse 16, he mentions, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against him. But then look back at verse 11. Luke was with Paul to the very end. The point that I really want to make from all of this, Luke is somebody just like us, right? None of us grew up in like the Jewish culture as it existed when Jesus was alive, or you have the temple complex and the priesthood and the sacrifices, Sabbaths where in synagogues they would read from the law and there were this people who were just so prepared for Jesus Christ and once they heard about him, it's like, wow, everything just makes sense. You know, and they're just so ready for it. Luke is just like us. And I suggest to you that if we're able to seek Jesus like Luke, who is just like us, our faith can endure anything. It can endure everything. And even when everybody else's faith in some way failed because of the trials and the suffering that Paul was undergoing, that people just 
did not want to deal with. Luke was always right there with him. So if we can learn to love Jesus just like Luke, we'll have a constantly growing and enduring faith. Um, So Luke's investigation. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. And the rest of the lesson is really we're just going to be talking about the first four verses of Luke and making some points from this. Just the amount, of, the amount of things that can be gained from these first four verses with all of these things in our perspective, it just amazes me. And it's just so humbling to think about the things that Luke did to gain this writing. Again, somebody without a Jewish background, somebody who is not even an eyewitness of Jesus, and we'll, we'll talk more about that after reading verses 1 through 4 here. So this is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And if you have an outline, this is now our, our second point dealing with Luke's investigation. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So the first thing, as was mentioned, if you look at verse 2, Luke mentions that it's not that he was an eyewitness of Jesus, that's not how he got any of this information. The idea is he had to personally investigate and interview and find people who had personally interacted with Jesus. Um, Imagine that it must have been very helpful to spend time with the Apostle Paul, considering he was an apostle and had direct revelation. Um, But, you know, you just read through Luke, and it's pretty obvious that um, Luke would have had to have interviewed a lot more people than the Apostle Paul to get this information. And if you look at verse 2, he doesn't say, by him who was an eyewitness, by they who were eyewitnesses. You know, one of the things is the Apostle Paul was not even with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul was not converted until years after the church had already been inaugurated, after Jesus had already ascended back into heaven. You know, so even though in Acts chapter 16 we see Luke enter into ministry with Paul, um, the, the implication is that there was just a world of investigation Luke underwent to get the ability to write these things. So he had to investigate everything carefully himself. One of the things that I think is interesting about this, there are over 300 words, or about 300 words, however you want to look at it. There's about 300 words that are used in Luke's writings, in the gospel specifically, that are not used in the other gospels. I want you to think about how hard that would be considering you are literally writing about the exact same thing as Matthew, Mark, and John, right? You're writing it in commonly, even about the same exact events. You know, there, there are many events in Luke that also Matthew wrote about, that Mark wrote about, right? So somehow, this person who is not an eyewitness, who also um, is writing about the same subjects and many of even the same events, is using 300 words unique to his own writing. And it just, I think it gives impression. These were things that Luke had digested himself very personally and very uniquely. His account contains many sermons, parables, and interactions that are also not found in the other Gospels. For instance, one easy one. Everybody probably is on some level aware of the parable of the prodigal son, right? I mean, that's just like, it's a, it's a major parable that's, you know, generally well known, even if somebody doesn't even know Scripture very well. 
Well, that's actually, it's only in Luke. That's not in Matthew, Mark, or John. And there's many other parables just like that that are not in the other Gospels that are exclusive to Luke. And so again, it just, it just gives more credit to the uniqueness of what he had found and digested personally. Another thing is, obviously in verse 1, he is very aware of lots of other different um, people who have been putting together accounts of Jesus' life. He says, many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So even though he was aware of the work of others, the accounts that other people are putting together, he still wasn't satisfied with the certainty and experience that he had found other people had, or even a partial, kind of incomplete, personal understanding of the events of Jesus' life. Luke wanted certainty, like in verse 4, absolute certainty of the things that he had heard. He wanted to gain as much as he could possibly gain to have as much confidence as possible in the things that had happened with Jesus' life. And I think with that, it helps us to understand that Luke's belief in Jesus was not like a fairy tale belief. It wasn't just, oh, okay, he's kind of bringing something new to my attention. I guess, why not? I'll believe it. I mean, there's a lot of goodness to this teaching, so I'll just go along with it. This wasn't this blind, easy faith that Luke had. It was a faith that required the work of investigation and research, right? So think about the time, the traveling, even think about the money it would require to get all of this information. Um, I think the undertaking of this investigation helps, again, understand the work that Luke had invested by faith into all of this. Um, You imagine the cost of traveling. In chapter 3, we'll look at in just a moment, there was a genealogy, and you just think, what did it take to get the information, the records, to be able to look at those things and gain certainty about them. So this, this wasn't something that Luke had just kind of stumbled upon. These were things that he had to deliberately, deliberately make sacrifices to obtain, whether by travel, whether by expense, whether by just a sacrifice of time. Luke had poured himself into this. The other thing about this is Luke goes back further in, in history than any of the other writers. And I think, again, it just gives even more credit to the investigation that he had undertaken. Um, It wasn't that Luke just kind of was copying Matthew and Mark and John. John, obviously, in the beginning of his gospel, goes back before time ever began. But Luke, in verse 5, begins in the time of John the Baptist's parents before John the Baptist was conceived. That is an earlier point in the history of Jesus' life, at least in the present history. It's an earlier point than any of the other gospels started. And it's not just an earlier point. There are details in the first two chapters of Luke that are very specific and are extraordinary. Again, example. In chapter 1, starting in verse 46, going through all the way through 55, Mary is quoted as giving this, um, this praise to God that like brings together the themes of Old Testament poetry. Verse 68 through 79, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, is quoted speaking of things that fulfill Old Testament prophecy and promises. Chapter 2, he goes back in Jesus' life to when he was born. He goes back to when Jesus was 12 and went to the temple. There's just all these details that Luke had found and put together in his gospel unique to his writing. Another thing is, Luke writes like a Jew. That might kind of sound strange, but I think it enhances the point that whoever Luke was, whatever culture he came from, that's not who Luke was anymore. 
You know, he writes about in verse 5, Zacharias being from the division of Abijah, and his wife was from the daughters of Aaron. So you have these very specific details. It's like, well, what does Luke care? And why does he think Theophilus cares about these details? I mean, what does it matter? He writes like the chronicle writer in the Old Testament. He writes like Ezra from the Old Testament, like Nehemiah. Because every detail to Luke related to his testimony was important. And Luke fully embraced the culture that Jesus had come from. Chapter, chapter 3, uh, verses 30, uh, I'm sorry, not verse 30, verse 23 uh, through 38. There is an, there's a genealogy written there that when you read it, kind of takes you off guard. It's like, why is this even here? It's not the same as Matthew's genealogy. But I think some important things about this, it shows again how distinct Luke's investigation was. This is not the same as Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Not only is it not the same, it contains over 20 more names than Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So the thing again, what does that say about Luke's interest in anything related to Jesus? And why would Luke seemingly waste time giving this information to Theophilus instead of just breezing past this and just moving on with the more important events? Not only was Luke utterly fascinated by everything that was related to Jesus, everything involved in where he came from, he wanted to invite Theophilus and anyone who would be interested in Jesus' life to have that same mentality. Why is this genealogy interesting? Why is it important? Why is it there? Because it's related to Jesus. That's why. And everything related to Jesus is interesting. Everything related to Jesus is important. And that's a part of how the gospel brings us into a new frame of mind. So, second point is Luke, uh, Luke and Theophilus. I'm sorry, this is our third point. Uh, Luke and Theophilus. Um, you noticed in chapter 1, uh, verse 3, that there's this man who's mentioned named Theophilus. If you quickly just turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, um, you'll see that Luke uh, mentions Theophilus by name at that section of uh, his writing as well. It says, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So you've got both of these documents that really are personal personal volumes given to this man, Theophilus. Some theorize that because Theophilus' name means lover of God, maybe it's some kind of way to represent or symbolize really anybody who reads this. But I think Theophilus in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 3, being called most excellent, uh, really seems to point to something that I think gives credence to this being a real person. In Acts chapter 23, 26, uh, Felix, who is a governor, is also called most excellent. It's the only other person in all of Luke's writing who shares that title or that description. So, I mean, it would seem to imply that Theophilus was probably somebody of some kind of political importance, as Felix was a governor. Uh, as he was called most excellent because of the fact that he was governor. It seems to lend itself to the fact that Theophilus would have been somebody of some kind of similar position some kind of similar uh, political power. So, you just think about this. Theophilus is somebody who probably is very busy. In verse number four 
of Luke chapter 1, Theophilus had actually already been taught. And I imagine he had already been taught probably a good deal of things about Jesus already. So if you think this person who's busy, this person who's already been taught about Jesus, giving him this gospel that is the longest writing when other people have probably written shorter versions of it, doesn't it seem like that's kind of excessive? Maybe even like a waste of time, you know? Like Theophilus has already heard a lot of these things. I mean, I mean, come on, I get it. Jesus, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended back into heaven. I got it. Like, it's, it's all I need, right? Just give me the facts. And Acts is usually the place that usually when I'm studying with somebody, I want to jump to as fast as possible. So there is a balance to this. This is a condensed version of Jesus' life, for one. For two, there are a lot of one-sermon, one-time, like, there's ways in the book of Acts where Paul and others, they'll give one sermon and people will be converted, right? And that's, that's valuable, but I don't think that's where it ends in terms of us having an understanding of Jesus. Um, I think what Luke understood with his investigation, learning about Jesus is irreplaceable and invaluable. That even though Theophilus was a very busy person, as I'm sure Luke was as a physician, if I'm not interested in trying to get as much as I can possibly get my hands on with Jesus, if learning about Jesus isn't worth my time, if learning about Jesus is not worth sacrificing my time, then salvation's really not for me then. And if I'm not willing to pour myself into the gospel, whatever, whatever time I have, if that's not valuable to me, then going to heaven is not valuable enough to you. So when we're talking about setting ourselves on the cornerstone of our faith, we're not talking about looking for a cliff-noted version of Jesus. And I'm not saying, obviously, that we have to read the whole gospel before somebody can be allowed to be baptized or anything like that. Again, there's, there's a balance to this. But I think there's something to gain from the fact that Theophilus had already been taught about Jesus. Luke is aware of this. And instead of just saying, well, here's the book of Acts, he says, here is a gigantic account of Jesus' life. <laughs> Meditate on it freely. And just the uniqueness of the gospel, Luke writes things that for somebody in a position of authority have such an appeal for humility. Luke was ready in his knowledge of Jesus to speak about Jesus in a way that appealed to the person he was writing to. You know, it's not just that Luke had just a generic way of presenting Jesus. I'm sure there were just a multitude of details that by inspiration Luke left out. Because the idea is not that Luke just entered into some kind of trance and God didn't need Luke to do any work. Inspiration in this regard is in aiding Luke to put these things together and working with the work that Luke had done to get this information condensed and written down in the best possible way, right? So, the question of the lesson, how valuable is it to you to know Jesus? Uh, the last lesson on these fundamental things was, do you love Jesus? And to more specifically address that, do you love Jesus like Luke? Again, we can't be satisfied with a shallow understanding of Jesus. And I think we have to understand the world 
is too busy for Jesus. That's just a reality, right? Like the idea of actually stopping to actually like read the gospel is like insanity, right? Like who's got who's got time for that to actually read this whole thing? Just again, give me give me the most condensed possible version. Jesus died. He died on a cross. He suffered for my sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended. Boom, 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 boom. Get me baptized, right? And if that's all it is, we aren't real disciples, right? So again, many sermons summarize the gospel in Acts. There's a balance to this, but there's a reason why there are four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. There's other accounts of people's lives in the Old Testament that are repeated. For instance, David. You've got First and Second Samuel. And then you have First Chronicles that reflects what's happened in First and Second Samuel. You have the Psalms that give another perspective of David's life. So, in a sense, you've got three areas of the Old Testament that really focus on David pretty heavily and very specifically. With Jesus, there are four accounts of his life. That's therefore a reason, right? So the appeal. We can't be satisfied with a shallow understanding. Luke expected Theophilus to understand the value of receiving as much information about Jesus as possible, to meditate on that information, to understand it, to apply it, to be saturated in it. And if knowing Jesus is not worth my time, again, Luke writing to Theophilus, that was the expectation, is by hearing about Jesus, you understand the value of continuing to gain more about Jesus. Everything in Scripture relies on Jesus as the cornerstone. When I read the Old Testament, the reason why the Old Testament matters more than just being past events and laws and regulations that have seemingly no relevance to me is because Jesus at the end of Luke's Gospel, as we looked at before, reveals that everything was actually all about identifying him the whole time and identifying ultimately, even in a New Testament way, principles of how I connect myself to God. Everything in the New Testament branches off of Jesus. And so Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, so much of what those initial epistles do is they just continue to build off of the foundation of the expectation that here's people who love Jesus, who are following him, who are interested in him. They want to know more about their salvation. They want to follow Jesus more specifically, more fully. They want their lives more saturated with their knowledge of the Lord. And they want to follow him in every possible way that they can. With this appeal, this is the fourth point under um, this appeal. Have you ever personally invested time to just read about Jesus' life? And I don't mean just at a congregational study. I don't mean at maybe Bible studies you've had with other people. If you have been made a child of God, you've heard the gospel, you've been convicted of your sins, you've confessed Jesus as your Lord, you've been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, you may have done all of those things. You may actually be serving God's commands in many ways. But if you have never personally poured yourself into an account of Jesus' life, that has to change. I think a simple application from this is pick a gospel to pour yourself into for a period of time. Not just one light reading where you read it and one and done. One of the things that has helped me the most in my faith is a brother who I've mentioned many times advocates adopting a book. And it's where you pick a book of the Bible And for like an entire year, you just read it over and over again. And when you're done, you read it again. 
and you're reading it because you want your mind and your heart totally saturated in it. You want everything else you're doing in your life to remind you of things that are written in that book of the Bible. You want to make connections in the book you've never seen before. You want it to be so alive in your heart that it's being brought up in conversation. And, and it's just like this engine that's continuously running behind the scenes of everything else you're doing so that scriptures are coming to your mind from that book of the Bible that are relevant to whatever it is that you're involving yourself in. And if you've never invested yourself into a gospel like that, I would appeal to you to see the importance of doing that. That Jesus' teachings are proclaimed by Jesus to be the very foundation of everything that identifies who we are. Look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. The idea is Jesus' life and teaching is our solid foundation. The epistles build on that foundation, but the epistles are not the cornerstone of that foundation. Again, there's an expectation in the epistles that we are constantly striving to commit ourselves more and more specifically to the living person of Christ. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and here's the my words and acts on them i will show you whom he is like he is like a man building a house who dug who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock and when a flood occurred the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built but the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great so the last question Have you been converted to Jesus himself? I think too often what happens is people are converted to the church. People are converted even to correct church doctrine. People are even converted to correct doctrine in general. People are converted to having fellowship with other Christians. People are converted to friendship with other Christians. And yet somehow, some way, just like the Pharisees and the Jews in John chapter 5 who were dedicated to the system of the law, dedicated to the scriptures, thinking life was in them, dedicated to Moses, Jesus would tell them they had no love of God in them. We have to be careful that we're ensuring that our lives are entirely centered on Jesus. That if someone says, are you a disciple of Jesus? Yes. I am following Jesus Christ. I am walking in his footsteps. And so, are you sharing Jesus with the people around you? Are you concerned about pleasing him and reflecting him in everything you do? Because there is a distinction between service to a system of commandments and service to the person of Jesus. The the humility of Jesus, the gratitude of Jesus, the balance of his character, the way that he loved people was simply not possible except by understanding the Father as we understand him, as we understand Jesus. So many issues that we face personally and congregationally stem from this. That ultimately, if a person can't be motivated to make any change, they can't be motivated to be involved anymore, if they're not interested in sound doctrine, if they're not interested in serving the brethren, if they're not interested in growing as a Christian, if they're not interested in reading God's word or growing closer to God, the problem is fundamentally they are not setting their life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. That is the core issue. And if that in any way is a description of you, you need to recenter your life on Jesus Christ. Final appeal. 
the new year is a time for many that is like a new beginning, right? People make resolutions, they make commitments. A lot of times this takes the form of financial commitments, health commitments. I would just encourage you that in the coming year, pour yourself into Jesus like you never have before. And if you do read the gospel again, don't just read it like you're reading a book. I mean, read it. Read it over and over again. Read the gospel. But read it as if it is reflecting Christ himself to you. That it is teaching you about your Lord. It is helping you to understand how to surrender yourself more and more specifically to Jesus Christ. Um, Let's look at Luke chapter 9, and then we'll bring the lesson to a close. Luke chapter 9 and we'll bring the lesson to a close. Verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The invitation is to know Jesus. The invitation is to love Jesus like Luke loved Jesus. The invitation is to be a disciple of Jesus, not a disciple of a system, not a disciple of a group, not a disciple of sound doctrine, but being a disciple of Jesus then having all of those other things put into perspective and being essential qualities of our love for God because of, first and foremost, our accurate and well-grounded understanding of everything Jesus came into the world to be. If there's any way we can help you with that this morning, come while we send and sing our invitation song.